a key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. This is Victoria Meyer. Today, I am here with Steve Lewandowski, who is the VP of Olefins for Chemical Market Analytics by Opus, a Dow Jones company, which is really a mouthful. Um, and more importantly, Steve is an expert in chemical markets and is here to share some of his and CMA's insights into what's going on in the global markets today. So Steve, welcome to The Chemical Show. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Victoria, for the invite. Absolutely. So uh, just, I'm going to start out this way. In a word, how would you describe your expectations for 2024? One word, I would say. One word, maybe more. (laughs) I I would say foggy. Mm. If I had to pick one word and you put me on the spot, I would say foggy. Yeah. Maybe why do I say that? Normally, normally when we get into cycles and, you know, this is a long chain in petrochemicals, we start with energy, we go all the way through demand on the consumer side. And it seems normally in the chain, someone's doing okay. The pie is a certain size and it just gets split um, in different ways. And the pie has been growing for a long time. It seems coming out of COVID, all the logistics issues, everything in our space, it seems like the pie has really shrunk. So no matter which part of the chain you're in, it seems there's some level of not so pleasant news Mm. that's really causing you to have some struggles. And when I talk struggles, I'm talking about margin and what ultimately the shareholders want, right? Give me some money back for what I've invested in. It just seems it's still a a bit of a battle across the board. Yeah. So as opposed to the pie growing and everybody being able to find their share, if I take a bigger piece of the pie... Uh, somebody else is losing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. So let's go ahead and just start out at the high level and talk about the general state of economy as we enter into 2024. What is it that you and your team are observing and reflecting on as we go into 2024? What are the key things that we should be looking at? Yeah, I think the only consensus from an economic standpoint is there's no consensus. (laughs) <laughs> Back to that fogginess. To the news. <laughs> you can listen to the news and one uh, view is, yeah, it's going to get better. It's not as bad as we thought and demand is going to come back. And the other side of the equation, you hear others saying, you know, I'm looking at factors and this is going to be really in a, in a bad place for a long term. And we thought it was going to happen in 23, but it's definitely going to happen in 2024. So back to foggy. This is why it's foggy. How do you really... Uh, the consumers, the health of the consumers. At the end of the day, the consumers got to be willing to buy widgets of any form or fashion. Yeah. And, you know, that's the key. And I've read a report on looking at money in circulation, M1, M2. And it seems, you know, a guy quoted, look, the trends today 
are are lined with some of the biggest pullbacks in the economy that we've ever seen. And how do you argue with that? But okay, there's more controls, the Fed's there, there's World Bank, and all these different regions have different control mechanisms. Maybe they can tone that that down a, a bit, but we still see a lot of headwinds in China. China's, you know, it's been a growth engine for many, many years and the shutdown, the COVID issues, young people not having jobs, mm. the aging population, they're shrinking in population. There's a lot of challenges coming out of China, which again, they sneeze and everyone else is going to catch a cold because they're such a big economy. So we're watching the banks, we're watching the interest rates, will construction restart? Our Fed said six drops over the course of this year in, in the rate. So we'll see how that ultimately plays out. And, you know, these economies getting heated, overheated and consumers, what's their debt level? Yeah. Have they pulled their bank accounts down? Do they have money available? Inflation's been a problematic. So the things you have to spend money on, heating your house, paying your bills, buying food, mobility, all that's going up in, in cost. So the extra money you have to buy widgets, that pool of money is decreased. So when we look at this, let, let's maybe break this down a little bit by regions. We're sitting here in North America, 60% of listeners are in North America, 40% are elsewhere. And yet, you know, it's easy to be kind of regional, regionally centric. And yet we know that there's global impacts, right? So you've already referenced China. Europe to me seems like a I'm not even, I was going to call it a mystery. It's not a mystery. It's a mess. How about that from across the pond? I, I think it looks like a mess. We've got the conflicts in Russia, Ukraine that are having a significant influence. And then of course, we now have the conflicts in the Middle East that are affecting at the very least transportation and supply chain, if not the rest of it. So how do you look at it when you're thinking about the regional dynamics and the impact on the global market? Now, that's a great question. And it's not only the Suez Canal that's having some challenges. Even the Panama Canal is having issues because of water levels. And I think right. shipping is really being um, selective on who gets to get, get through at what timing. And routes are shipping around South America to go to Asia or around Africa to move back and forth. So everything's being extended. I think during COVID, we went through a window of time we didn't have enough containers well, I understand they've added 50% uh, mm. new capacity to the container fleet. So it's no longer a container issue, but now it's becoming a ship issue because it takes a lot longer to sail these longer routes. And we're, we're seeing freight rates move up because of this. And insurance on, on ships is one of the problems, but it's just the, the time to, to get around the world. Like it or not, you know, it's a global petrochemical world and things move from low cost regions to, to high demand or higher cost regions in, in this environment. So yeah, the Middle East is definitely a problem. Ukraine, how does that sort out? And the implications for Russia and sanctions and oil getting out versus intermediates getting out and gas getting out. It seems Russia's, there's a bit more pressure on Russia and less is coming out than they otherwise would have wanted. And yeah. of course, challenges in the Middle East. Yeah, which of course brings us to energy, right? So the other big driver across the petrochemical markets and global economies is energy, right? So both when we think about traditional energy, oil and gas, and as it ties into the refining markets, et cetera, as well as green energy, which is a continuing growth target. Although again, you look at the news and there's a lot of investment there that has pulled back. What's the state of energy? And how is that influencing chemical markets? 
Yeah, I think oil, OPEX tried to rein in some of their production, and I think that was rather unsuccessful, probably more because the global demand for transportation fuels has pulled back some. So Saudi actually, I think last week or earlier this week announced, we're just going to lower prices. So this isn't working for us and we got to make the oil go away. So they're lowering prices a bit. I think on a gas perspective, it's been warmer than normal so far this winter, uh, but there's com- some cold spurts, uh, definitely in you know parts of the US. Definitely there's a wave coming across Europe that's colder and then Western China and that big cold front's moving towards the east. So it's getting colder and yeah. we'll probably start consuming a bit more gas. And, and, yeah. and hotter. It's getting colder and hotter all and hotter at the same time, places, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with that. I think the biggest thing when I look at energy and petrochemicals is the, is the refining capacity additions that are coming. And the generic crack spreads, when you look at refining operations, there's a three, two, one crack and a two, one, one crack. So three barrels of oil, two barrels of gasoline, one barrel of diesel, or two barrels of oil, one gasoline, one diesel. So it's a gasoline refinery versus a yeah. distillate refinery. And if you look at history, and I just did this because I made a presentation yesterday, prior to 2022, those crack spreads were somewhere around 10 bucks a barrel. If you look at starting 2022 through 23, there's a lot of volatility, but it went as high as 50, 60 bucks a barrel. And what happened is we lost quite some refining capacity around the world. The U.S. pulled its capacity back. Demand mm-hmm. came back and we just couldn't make the fuels products with the steel that was on the ground. And of course, supply demand and the prices went up. And the consequence of those prices going up is some of those less efficient refineries, to me, made a lot more naphtha. Why is naphtha important? Because it's a majority of the ethylene that we make. And a lot yeah. of the propylene and aromatics comes from crackers and naphtha. And the naphtha price, which is normally about equal to crude, has dropped to as low as 50 bucks a barrel below crude. So it's important. Those crackers around the world running naphtha had really low prices. Got it. And, you know, they were more competitive with the low cost ethane in the Middle East and North America. Why do I say all this? Because going forward, we have a lot of new refining capacity coming, some seven, eight million barrels a day right. worth oil processing. Where, where is most of that coming in, Steve? Some is in the Middle East, some is North Africa. Okay. Uh, you know, there's some expansions in North America and there's, you know, then in Asia. Yeah. So there's a lot of refining capacity coming configured for the right slate of the fuels that we need, the mix of gasoline, jet and diesel, which means to me, there's going to be less naphtha available. No one. Well, so hang tight though. Why is there less? Now, so now I'm going to have to I'm not following you 100%. So so we lost refining capacity. Things were on high demand. We've got more of the refiners that are producing. More of them are producing naphtha versus the more other refined Today, they're producing more naphtha. Exactly. Today, okay. Because- but tomorrow, the new assets coming on are actually producing less naphtha. They're going to produce more gasoline, jet, and diesel okay. and less co-product naphtha because they're going to have the steel that that makes sense for. So my my thought is that naphtha prices will go up. Um, once naphtha prices go up, the whole cost structure, and we've already seen this, yeah. you know, so I'm watching this closely as these refineries start up. You know, we're seeing that naphtha price increase. It was 25 bucks a barrel in July and today it's five. So naphtha has already gone up um, relative to crude. Yeah. which means the cost structure is going up and all of these operators are going to have to raise their 
their prices or they're going to have to shut down. They're going to, they can't run forever um, in negative cash flow. And if the rest of the world goes up in naphtha, that's going to benefit the Middle East and North America because our nat gas and ethane prices aren't really moving. So Got it's it. going to be regional, right? Maybe the margins aren't going to improve in Europe, Latin America, um, probably not in Asia, but they definitely have room to improve in North America because the whole cost structure is going to go up around the rest of the world. Okay. So I think this takes us into our next topic here, which is what do we think about what's going on in petrochemical markets? And so my first observation with that, Steve, is some of the feedstock costs are going up, but we're in such a dramatic oversupply. Does it matter when you think about the ethylene cost curve? Yeah. Does it matter? Yeah, we definitely, yeah we've definitely overbuilt the last four years, yeah. five years ethylene, propylene, and, and most of the derivatives. I think the only value chain that really didn't overbuild was chloroalkali vinyls. And that's because they went through a big overbuild in 2008 through 2015. Yeah. And they're just kind of absorbing um, what they built in. They Their margins aren't very good either because construction's off and interest rates are up and government spending's down and no new housing starts. So they're struggling more from a de demand perspective. But yeah, the rest of the industry, we've overbuilt. But this is why it becomes important. It's a regional story then if you have local valued feed. And why did everyone build in the Middle East? Why did everyone build new assets in North America? Because the feedstock is cheap. Yeah. And even in a downturn, I should be the survivor, not yeah. someone else. So, you know, that's why I'm pushing this story on naphtha prices going up because that will benefit operators, especially in this region. All of the steel that we've installed, as long as the logistics are available, we should be able to run to make PE, make glycols. If we have to make some polypropylene as well, we should make that clear. And in, in which we still require the export markets, right? In order to be effective with this, or can we be really a regionally balanced? No, we, no, all this was invested in North America, no different than the Middle East market, right? Mm -hmm. We have cost advantage on feeds. And we're going to build to service the rest of the world on ethylene. Propylene's yeah. a bit more regional. Maybe it's the Americas that balance more so than using the rest of the world. But ethylene is really global. And yeah. we built here because the feed was going to be cheap. Oil and naphtha were going to be higher cost. We would have an advantage. And exports were a majority of the offtake from all those new investments. Yeah, there was supposed to be some domestic growth, which hasn't been the case Really, since COVID, I quoted the PE demand domestically is about equal to what it was in 2019. Hmm. So we so dip. Yeah, it's been we we dipped and it's been kind of flat. So we've had no growth in the space. Yeah. On that point, those in general have been growing very small, not at the rates we've seen before, but we still have growth. It feels bad, and everyone says, "Well, this is a demand-driven issue." And no, like you noted, it's a supply issue. We do have some growth. Even if growth was at historical levels, we would still have an oversupply. It would just take a little less time to absorb what we've overbuilt. Yeah. So, Steve, I know you work with and talk with a lot of different companies. How are they responding to these markets, right? Because at the end of the day, it's fine for us to know that we're foggy. When we think about petrochemicals in particular, we're in a state of oversupply. Demand is flat, right? So I don't, I, I'm with you. I don't think it's necessarily declining. I think it's flat. I think it's, it's growing and it's ebbing and flowing, let's just say, in different markets at different times. But what are the strategies that you see companies employing to deal with this? 
Yeah, I, I think, okay, they always are benchmarking their assets. Are we cost competitive? Mm -hmm. Europe's really going to have some issues on cost as the carbon tax, the, the burden for carbon emissions is going to grow. It's not shrinking. Yeah. So those, those grandfathered allocations are decreasing and the price is going to ebb and flow with that. So they're going to have to really assess what's the consequence of this. The CBAM save me, is that kind of like a trade barrier that's going to raise import prices? And if it raises import prices, I'm going to raise my price. And right. maybe it covers the cost of investments or trading that I have to do on the carbon. I probably don't make a lot more money, but at least I can survive because I'm not yeah. chewing into my cash flow. I'm just kind of breaking even on that point. So they have one, one dynamic in that region. I think it really depends on the global footprint of companies. If you're in a lot of different regions, and I've heard Dow say this for years, and rightly so, is we've we kind of diversified our steel on the ground so that we can pick and choose where to run and not run in these kind of markets, which could imply, I was going to say, maybe I run harder in North America and less hard in Europe and move the pounds and, and make it work that way. And there's others that can do the same on a lot of different derivatives. So I think if you're one guy with one client making, you know, one set of products, it's more difficult for you because if mm. you can't really shut down, you can reduce rates to your minimum. Yep. And then the next decision is, okay, if I'm still losing money, I got to shut down and I'm just basically giving up and I'm losing my market share because I'm, I'm not making anything. Or do you make commercial arrangements where you buy to cover and keep your market mm -hmm. share? And that's always possible. Is that the answer they want to do? I, I don't know. The consumers will say, well, why am I buying from the other guy anyway through you? So that I think those guys that are more independent are going to have a bit more of, of a challenge. Yeah. Well, and we're certainly starting to see some some deals being made, not in chemicals so much, but certainly as we look at energy, and I have to believe that at some point that's going to trickle down to chemicals to help create some of that diversification in the case of some companies and to reduce some of it in the case of others. No, the oversupply is an issue. We have a pause in deals in most of the stuff the next couple of years. But what we see already under construction is there's another big wave coming by 26. 27. China's building. Yeah. And I always tell people, they go, why are they building in this oversupplied world? They say, well, A, they're very short, contain ethylene and contain propylene. B, they can install capacity much cheaper than anyone else. And they want people working. So strategically, mm. you're building things, you're making things, and people are working. And it works for them on a because some of the dynamics that they have in their favor help them along that path. I think the Middle East is kind of in in the same boat. There's rumblings yeah. about some big projects coming out of there before 2030. So we're not really going to get out of this past wave of overbuild. We got a little bit of a breather, but then boom, it's going to start again. So these companies are going to have to start making decisions. Someone is going to have to idle for a longer period of time, extended turnarounds. You know, demand isn't going to be the solution in this case. I don't know. The, the, the economy would really have to take off in a big, big, big way to absorb all this excess. Yeah. And I think like the last big wave of kind of industry-wide shutdowns was probably what, early 2000s when we saw rationalization? Yep. yep. So we may be there's, seeing that again. I mean, we see China, I think there's, um, I'm trying to remember the number, less than 2 million tons of small units in China are going to shut down. 
The problem is with all these little sites is that they've already announced, yeah, but we're going to shut this one down and we're going to build one right next to it that's bigger. That meets the criteria. So they're just, you know, displacing old inefficient and and bringing on new stuff. We're watching, we're looking at the cost curves. We're, we're trying to assess, you know, who's at risk, but shutting down is comes complicated too. If you're a, a cracker petrochem complex next to a refinery, you've, kind of have to work together. And if the, the pet chem shuts down, the refinery is going to be in a bind and vice versa, right? And yeah. there's social yeah. pressure. Who doesn't like to shut them down. Yeah. Back but in my we, shell days, there was a few sites that we, yeah. we like almost every other year, it seems like we assessed it like, boy, this doesn't seem economic. Should we be shutting it down? It's like, oh no, we need it for offtakes and other reasons that when you look at the network effects, the network effects were were really critical in that you case. You got to lift the perimeter of your economic analysis, and that nature yeah. can change a lot. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about just the whole sustainability, the role of carbon as we look across the value chain, right? So I think we've gone from a place where, well, I, we're not slowing down, right? So there's nobody's changing government regulations at this point around net zero targets and carbon targets. Now the solutions to get there seem to be varying. Dow just announced their final investment decision on their net zero ethylene cracker in Fort Saskatchewan. And, you know, I've got to believe everybody's got a strategy of some sort in the works. What are you saying and how is this influencing markets today? So I'm kind of pragmatic on this front. I'm not a climate denier, but I'm also a, a climate realist. And when you look at carbon emissions today in the sources, right, there's power generation, there's mobility, there's industrial uses and residential commercial and greenhouse gas. You have also some emissions just from agriculture. I think the problem is when you look at just electricity today, production on a global basis, it's 60% fossil fuels. Hmm. Just the base electricity today. So we have a growing population and we want mobility to go to electricity and we want industry to go to electricity. I mean, I just can't circle that square and make that work because we're already struggling to, to backfill the baseload of power, let alone the growing appetite for green power. Now, that's not to say there's not clever folks looking to solve this. Solar's out there. I get it. Hydro, I think. Hydro's it's only it's a function of rivers and rain, and it has an environmental footprint when you when you put the dams in. So that's maybe not the solution. Is it nuclear? I mean, Dow's also announced their nuclear joint venture on the Gulf Coast. So that's a solution. But you know, being pragmatic, I would say. We balance in our business tons, not ideas. So there's a lot of thoughts about doing things. But at the end of the day, until the technology catches up, it's hard. We will adapt once we mm. see that it's realistic, but we won't. When we look at any, you know, carbon in general, we look at, I always say four pillars. It's about policy. It's about the ultimate price. It's about your process emissions, whether that's the scope one from your side, scope two from the power you buy, scope three is more difficult. And then I look at pathways. What materials can solve similar problems? Plastic versus papers, plastic versus aluminum. And what are the relative challenges both of those have on the carbon front? And I think where we're the most challenged is really on policy. Europe's pushing policy hard. 
Canada has some policies, California has some policies, but it's, I think it's more ambition today for a lot of these politicians versus truly enacting firm laws to push this. And we see even California said, okay, we're going to defer this elimination of natural gas to generate power in California. I think in um, the UK, they said, we're going to defer um, the time window that you got to have an EV and no, you know, internal combustion engines for cars. So all these, the reality is coming into play and saying, I can't make this work yet. Someday we will, but today the technology is still evolving and we got to, we got to find a way. So I think one of the challenges that we all see is, is balancing this pragmatism versus the chatter that comes out of the media and social media, as well as politicians and influencers and regulators. You guys are now owned, Chemical Market Analytics is now owned by a media company, Dow Jones, which of course is the Wall Street Journal and many other great publications. And I'm a longtime Wall Street Journal um, reader, so I love that publication. But how are you, now that you're part of a bigger group and a media company at that, how are you guys influencing or able to influence the storylines? Because at the end of the day, right, I see this as a bit of a symbiotic relationship between media and government and industry. Are you seeing any changes in that way? Are, are you influencing anything, Steve? Should we be counting on you? <laughs> I think the Wall Street Journal and Barron's, their goal and one of the visions of our CEO is they have four main pillars, but one is about honesty and telling the truth and what they put in print or electronic versions of their um, publications. So part of the reason they acquired us, I think, was to get uh, a better understanding, not from what everyone and all the other chatter, as you say, but really a technical perspective on how this stuff really fits together. And again, being pragmatic. Now, they have some clever journalists. I've spent some time in New York at the News Corps office and sat down and talked to them about different parts of the the space. I think at that time we are talking about circularity, but they know biofuels. I mean, these folks really are, with the resources they have, they're pretty smart and they've figured out things and they try to write as best uh, from the information they have. So, But our interaction with them is growing for sure. Um, We have some initiatives across the board as we still get settled on platforms and and just getting ingested into the bigger organization. We're just figuring out where, who do we talk to? How do we talk to? We finally got into a similar platform where we can actually go and find everyone's email address. So we can find people now. (laughs) That's a win. (laughs) So that's a big plus. So it's a process. Yeah. And, but they desire us to give them that guidance and be the technical perspective and understand all the other implications. It's easy just to say, I want zero emissions or net zero. Mm. What are the steps to get there? And technology wise, where do we stand? Is it really going to be, is it going to be possible at the pace that some people want? Yeah. So Steve, you started out saying that your word for the year is foggy. My question is what's our lighthouse that we should be looking for, right? So what are the indicators that you are watching and that we should be watching to help navigate the year. I, I don't I don't think this fog will lift this year for sure. It's all the economic issues, it's the geopolitics. We have an election coming in the US. How is that gonna play out? It, you know, 
everything probably in Washington, D.C. is going to go at a slower pace, if that's even possible. I don't know. Yeah. Just because who knows who the next leader is going to be. Yeah. And maybe it's not going to be even the two front runners as they are calling it today. You never know. So from a U.S. perspective, that's going to have some implications. But we've overbuilt, right? It's just until you get firm announcements of some shutdowns, until you get confidence in the economy and consumers start really buying again at a pace they used to buy, you know, those are really the things to watch for. Or what's the debt level of, of private citizens? Are they are their credit cards maxed out and now they're just paying credit card bills and are just going to have to pull back from anything else? I think it's just going to be tough. It's and our our worry is is this you know small window of time that we don't add capacity is small. And if that next wave is real and those people build for the reasons they feel are strategic and look, CP Chem's building, they're erecting in the U.S. They're moving yeah. dirt and putting up towers. Dow said they're going to be started up by 27 on two thirds of the plant and the other third by 29. I mean, we're building and we're adding to that. And that's right around the corner, really, in the, yeah, in exactly. the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Interesting. All right. Well, Steve, this has been good. Thanks for joining us today on The Chemical Show. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.